0: Hi, my name is Pete Scazzara. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. And uh, our theme today is slowing down for loving union, slowing down for loving union. And what we're doing here is uh, I am taking chapter by chapter of the Emotionally Healthy Leader book and... Uh, supplementing what I trust many of you are doing. I know many leadership teams are doing around the world, which is discussing it chapter by chapter uh, among themselves. And this is meant to be uh, really a supplement to that and build on it uh, for you or with you. And so in addition, there's actually a a discussion guide. I want to encourage you to download. It's free and uh, it goes chapter by chapter. And you can go to our website at emotionallyhealthy.org slash leader guide. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash EH leader guide. And it's just got a few questions. It'll help you uh, in your discussion, stay focused. And so there are four inner life issues uh, that are core and inform our outer life leadership. And we've been going one by one through them. We began with face your shadow uh, and the uh, the weight of being self-aware of how our past has impacted who we are today and uh, looking at the shadow side of our gifts and what's often lying in our unconscious. And then we talked about leading out of your marriage or singleness as another core uh, inner life issue uh, that informs everything we do in our outer life, which we'll talk about in the weeks to come. But today I want to talk to you about the third core, the third really central inner life issue uh, that. Again, informs everything we do, and is life or in death as we build long term. And it's called slowing down for loving union. The word slowing down is obviously very key, and then loving union. So, again, loving union, I, I just simply define as allowing Jesus and His will to have full access in your life, and, and you're in a posture of attentiveness, openness, and surrender. Let me say that again: it's allowing Jesus and His will full access. Not partial access, but full access in your life in a posture of attentiveness, openness, and surrender. It's about abiding in Jesus, John 15, right? And, and it's about praying always, and Paul talks about that. It's about communing always, and not just uh, at a certain points of the day, but that my life is one of communion with Jesus. Again, at work, jogging, exercising, driving my car, going on vacation. I'm, I'm in this Praying always, remembering Jesus, communing with him, loving union is a, is, a, is a lovely phrase coming out of the Middle Ages. It's remembering him, being conscious of him. And if you're going to do a little survey, you know, how, how conscious of you are, are you of Jesus throughout the day? And I remember when I first began to, you know, get into this, I realized, oh, I'm, my awareness of Jesus is not all through the day. It's, uh, it's very spotty and because uh, the most important question we're asking especially as leaders is god what are you saying to me i'm, I'm following you and uh, Lord Jesus, what are you saying to me uh, right now, throughout the day, my weeks, my months, as I'm making decisions as a leader? I've got a nice little uh, quick inventory that's actually in the chapter, which you know you're not experiencing loving union when. It's got 10 qualities. I, like, here's the qualities basically for me that I know when I'm out of whack. I'm, I'm, I'm getting disconnected from loving union with God. And, here, here's a, and you can just grade yourself. I'm going to list 10 real quickly, and you can just say, check how much of these apply to you. And that's an indication that you're not in loving union, you know, at least at that moment or hour or days. Here it is. Number one, you can't shake the pressure that you feel like you have too much to do in too little time. You know you're not in loving union when, number two, you're always rushing. You know you're not in loving union when, number three, you routinely fire off quick opinions and judgment. Number four, you know you're not in loving union when you're often fearful of the future. Number five, you know you're not in loving union when you are overly concerned about what other people think. Number six, you know you're not experiencing loving union when you're defensive and easily offended. Number seven, you know you're not experiencing loving union when you are routinely preoccupied and distracted. Number eight, you know you're not experiencing loving union when you consistently ignore the stress, anxiety, and tightness of your body. Number nine, you know you're not experiencing loving union when you feel unenthusiastic or threatened by the success of others. And number 10, you know you're not experiencing loving union when you routinely spend more time talking than listening. Great little test for yourself or oil lights in the car saying, hmm, I've got to make some adjustments here. I've got to slow some things down. So let me begin with a biblical story that uh, I know uh, has put the fear of God in me uh, for years as a leader, and I trust that it will do for you as we kind of dive into this topic of slowing down for a loving union. It's the story of Moses, who along with his brother and Aaron, his brother Aaron, who was functioning really as a COO, uh, as they're waiting in the wilderness for 40 years to enter the promised land. And they started out with so 603,550 uh, men to, to, to lead. That's a lot of men, and you got women and children. That's why scholars say it's between two and three million people. And they're, cons- they're just repeatedly tested by uh, the complaining that the people are doing against Moses and Aaron, and, uh, you know, crying out for lack of food, it's taking too long, you know, lack of uh, water. And uh, here we pick it up in Exodus, cha- I'm, I'm sorry, in Numbers chapter 20. And they accuse Moses of bringing them out into the desert to die. And Moses just, he gets so angry. He gets, he's livid and he's tired uh, and he's not in a good place, and he doesn't anger his management or his, his anger or resentment well. So he loses his cool, and, uh, but he cries out to God. The Lord says to him, okay, Moses, take your staff, you and your brother Aaron, and gather the assembly. And, and the Lord says, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. And uh, so Moses takes his staff, just as God said. They gather the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses says, listen, you rebels. Must we bring water out of this rock? And then Moses raises his arm and he strikes the rock twice with his staff. And it says that water gushes out in the community and the the animals drank. Uh, But then the Lord says to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to honor me as holy in the sight of all Israel, you will not bring the community into basically the promised land. Now, what's so interesting is because Moses and Aaron are serving the people, they've been faithful for decades, uh, but he strays out of loving union with God. He, he loses it. He takes matters into his own hands. Uh, he, he calls the people rebels, and uh, he, he takes he uses an old strategy. Instead of, uh, of striking the rock, and God says, just speak to the rock. And, uh, you know, he's doing what worked earlier. It's really interesting to go back to Exodus 17 when they they strike the rock and water comes out. And, uh, but he strikes it twice. And it's interesting because Paul refers to the rock as Christ. And uh, they, for their rebellion, and God calls it, you know, rebellion, you know, he rebels. Uh, And unbelief, because you didn't believe me or trust me, uh, he doesn't go into the promised land. And... uh, I mean, it is a sobering story about leadership. Uh, and, I mean, Moses, I mean, you don't get much greater than Moses uh, in the Old Testament. And I've struck the rock out of frustration uh, and anger at God's roundabout ways uh, in terms of just, 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 I'll just, okay, God, I'll do it. And I'll, I'll do I end up doing half of it. And so let me just ask you, you know, when's, when's the last time you took matters into your own hands and struck the rock in your leadership? You know, and what promised land might you be sacrificing even now? Now, there's a principle: the higher up you go in leadership, the greater accountability, uh, the lesser freedom you have. In the sense of, because you're first of all, you're much more public. The consequences of what you do are much wider and uh, larger and deeper. And so, that's the higher integrity needed. The more time you need to be with God, and more to be more anchored and more thoughtful. So. Again, before you go rushing into having a larger, wider ministry, uh, you want to make sure you have your inner life in order. Again, face your shadow, lead out of your marriage or singleness, and now here, slow down for loving union. I mean, how many, uh, you know, how can so many gifted, anointed, successful leaders fall? And uh, my history of people, uh, leaders, Christian leaders falling, you know, goes way back to my early days as a Christian. I mean, the very person who was going to marry Jerry and I, uh, you know, f- three months before the wedding, you know, ended up resigning out of out of a scandal. And I, scandal's have been happening for the forty plus years that I've been a Christian leader. And uh, I don't think we can expect these scandals to stop. Why would they? Uh, because fundamentally, the way we do discipleship and leader development has not changed. Uh, we're so expedient and uh, result driven that we just move people along very quickly, and and we don't slow down enough to actually look at that inner life issue. And I, I think of even my first eight years as a leader, prior to getting into all this emotional, healthy discipleship material, uh, the, the pressure of pastoring and church planting and uh, made abiding very difficult. I lost my joy. And I remember hearing uh, large pastors, large well-known pastors say things like, I had to leave pastoring to save my soul. I remember one pastor who had left the ministry saying that, and I just said, "You had to leave pastoring to save your soul." And I thought to myself, "I feel it myself, and uh, but I know something's not that that can't be." So it is quite challenging to lead, and I really want you to lead. I mean, I, I I believe in leadership. The world and the church desperately needs leaders. That is, those who will influence others in a positive way for Christ and God. Uh, has always used leaders throughout human history. And, and, and so the question is another way to do it, and, and is slowing down for love and union is a core, core piece of it. Now, again, evangelicalism, uh, which is our tradition, most of our tradition, if you're listening to me, uh, has great strengths. We get people into scripture, we're evangelistic, we want to mobilize people in the gifts that are spirit, Ephesians chapter 4, etc. But we've so taken over out of our commitment to results uh, just the best business practices of CEOs and uh, to grow our numbers and fulfill the great commission that are paying attention to slow of loving union with Jesus has been not as serious or thoughtful as I believe it needs to be uh, if we're going to change. And what's happened here in the, in the Western church in particular, we've exported this kind of pragmatic expediency to the whole world. And so now we've got, you know, places like China and Korea, which are, uh, and Africa, where the schedule of pastors and leaders is so out of control. Um, One fellow who was in touch with lots of pastors in China told me the story of meeting with a woman pastor over dinner, and she'd been a pastor for 12 years. Uh, but she was was really busy. And she was available 24-7. She had thousands of people in her church, but she had only one assistant under her. And that assistant could not preach. Again, had to do with one of the state churches, uh, and and he was not allowed to. So she worked 24-7. She didn't have any vacations for 12 years. Um, Her cell phone she talked about was on 24 hours a day. And she said, suppose someone said to my friend, suppose someone needs my help at 2 a.m. She preaches six to seven times a day on Sunday, and she teaches in a seminary. She sees her husband uh, every two weeks for just one day. He lives five hours away in another city and teaches at a leading seminary there. And so when my friend was telling her, this is not good, this is not healthy, she then said, I got a story for you. There's another pastor living and serving vocationally as a pastor in another city. Now, Chinese New Year is the biggest holiday. He comes home once a year from this distant city, and he has one child, 10, 11 years old, and a wife. He comes home and he leaves the next day because he feels so guilty. The son, at one point, was clinging to him, begging him, holding to his leg, please stay here. The father kicked him and said, devil, get thee behind me. And he pushed his son away and got on the train. He was so guilt-ridden because if he doesn't do this, people are going to die without Christ, and everything's for the gospel. Now you're probably saying, "Oh, that's ridiculous," you know. And I, uh, Jerry and I, met with a group of pastors in Korea of uh, one of their mega churches, and it was just amazing as we mapped out one of the pastors, young pastors, hours. Uh, and it was an average pastor for it was a, a large church he worked 110 hours a week yeah small child a wife obviously who were very lonely 110 hours a week is so unsustainable uh, but again I, I think it's caught up in, in Western capitalist culture and something's wrong there uh, obviously and, um, and and so I want to suggest you as we get into this discussion here that, the way we presently do our devotional practices and structure our life are insufficient. Uh, we are weak uh, as uh, particularly evangelical, uh, and essentially I can say evangelical Orthodox, evangelical Catholics as well, evangelical Protestants in particular, at being, at silence and stillness and slowing down. Um, and we're all taught quiet time and devotionals, read the Bible through in a year, You know, intercede for those around you. And so, what I want to offer to you is one of the distinctives of emotionally healthy leadership, emotionally healthy discipleship, and it's this: it's getting the, the riches of monasticism, a tradition going back 2,000 plus years. Not just calling—I'm not just calling you to oh, add a few spiritual disciplines to your life, uh, but something much larger, much more radical is needed because the problem is so enormous. Now, I was always very disciplined from the time I came to Christ. you know, I had quiet time every day, an hour or two hours. To ca- and that quiet time is meant to carry—I would have an hour or two hour quiet time, I'd say, every day, from early on when I came to Christ, which is pretty—very con- consistent. And not legalistically, I just love spending time in Scripture and with Jesus and that and the understanding that that would carry me through the day uh, to pay attention to him. It, it did not— um, because I underestimated, I believe we underestimate three things. We underestimate the world, the flesh, and the devil himself. Uh, and I I love the book of Revelation. I spent a couple of years preaching through it. Uh, this is one of the most most important books of the Bible. Uh, and in that book, we get a, in a, a, a visual picture of what we're up against, uh, the world, which is pictured as the beast. In that day, it was the Roman Empire, but it's all the whole system of the world, and looks differently today, obviously, with globalization and technology, but that's out to cut you off from Jesus. And behind the world, there's a beast. I mean, there's a there's a devil himself, a dragon, who wants to cut you off from Jesus and loving union with Jesus. And there's our own flesh, our own self-will, our stubbornness that we, we blink an eye before we know we're going astray, our, our bent will. And, uh, and so the, the, the whole point of the book of Revelation. Of course, yes, Jesus is return, He's on the throne. He rules. But we face a formidable warfare uh, that seeks to cut you off and cut me off from loving union with Jesus. Do you understand if we get cut off from abiding with Jesus, our, we cannot bear any any fruit that's going to last. And uh, it, it, it's a disaster. And, and that's why I want to invite you to see yourself first as a monk. Like, who are you? What's your identity? I'm, I'm a monk in a sense of I'm um, my my calling is to be with Him, uh, yet I'm, I'm actually I'm leading. Of course, I'm in the world, not living behind a cloistered walls. But I'm a my, my first calling in life is to be a man, to be a woman of prayer, and to be with Jesus, and uh, and so I you know I see myself as a as a, a monk, and that's why to and I, I love the the story of you know Bernard, who. Uh, of Clairvaux, who warned about the consequences of engaging in too much ministry before uh, we were ready, and uh, in the, great, in the great challenge of balancing our interior life with our activity—that our doing for God uh, would not get beyond our leading, of uh, our our doing for God would not get beyond our being with God—and he was a 12th-century leader. And he was an abbot in France, but he would not allow anyone to get into active leadership who was not first a contemplative. He had no patience for an activism that was not nourished by an interior life overflowing with Jesus. He called it the sin of sloth or laziness. He said, sloth is when you're busy because you can't bear the effort demanded by a life of solitude and recollection. And it was Merton who wrote, the active life is to flow from a superabundance of contemplation. And so for Bernard of Clairvaux in the the, uh, 1100s, when one of his spiritual sons, uh, one of his monks, became a pope. His name was Eugene III. It's written in a book called Letters to Eugene. But he was so concerned about Eugene now that he was pope because uh, he did not have the interior life. He was kind of a sloppy monk. He didn't have have uh, an interior life sufficient to cope with the level of responsibility he was now carrying, the weight. And Bernard is grieved for him because he's got these demands of his now office of being the pope of the Western Church. And here's what he writes to him. He says, remove yourself from the demands as much as possible, lest you become distracted and get a hard heart. If you're not terrified by the thought of that happening, a hard heart is yours already. And he warns them about getting involved, engaged in activity before the time is ripe. Fascinating, isn't it? And uh, so my shift happened in 2003, 2004, through a sabbatical, through exposure to, mon- to monks, uh, to monasticism. And again, I've said earlier, I've got, I went to a variety of monasteries, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, even some Protestant ones. And at that time, I wasn't even sure if monks were saved. You know, I, I had a very narrow attitude. And the shock was to, to meet some men and women who were Roman Catholic and Orthodox, who had profound walks with God, uh, of prayer, of slowing down, of being with Jesus, and that silence and stillness over that, those four-month period really was a, was a significant change for me. And uh, I think, uh, you know, God exposed to my, my own narrowness, but not only that, it, it, it got me started on a journey of, oh my gosh, um, I've got to slow down for love and union. And I realized this, the riches of monasticism, which has 2000 years, uh, really goes back to Moses, uh, 40 years in the desert before God called him to lead his people out of Egypt. The whole desert father tradition goes back to the prophet Elijah, who was in the desert, and then John the Baptist, who spent most of his life in the desert, and then Paul, who spent three years in the Arabian desert, and, and then Jesus, who spent time in the desert to be alone with the Father, and he had a rhythm of being with God, and and uh, and then that at, birthed into the desert fathers and mothers of the third, fourth, and fifth centuries, who became the kind of the, who fled to the desert out of. Egypt and Syria and Palestine, because the church had become so worldly, and they went to seek God's face in silence and solitude. And they became, the out of that came monasticism, and actually the leaders of the church for the first 1,500 years. And so just, you know, Jesus warned about the consequences of getting into leadership or ministry activity without him. In other words, just relying on our gifts. And he talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, where he, says, where he says, Jesus says, Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, uh, you know, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And Jesus says, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. You know, depart from me. And what's interesting, because he says there are gonna be people who are gonna do a lot of good things in my name. They're gonna do miracles, help people, they're gonna prophesy to people, they're gonna drive out demons, they're gonna help people's lives get better. But I'm going to say I never knew you because, but yet Jesus knows everything about everybody. How can he say I never knew you? He knows everything. He knows us. What he means by that is the word for intimacy. He goes, you never let me in. It's the word out of Revelations 3.20. The word knowing there is the word of Adam and Eve knowing each other in, in, in intercourse, you know, in intimacy in oneness of sexuality. And He says, you never, why well, the word loving union is such a great word out of the Middle Ages. I, I never knew you. I never knew loving union with you. Uh, you never let me in. Again, think of, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The question is, is the door of your life open? Like all through the day, it's just open. You're surrendering your will, uh, your, your your direction of your day. You're just in, you're in communion with Jesus. And that kind of loving union knowledge, that's what he's talking about here. But the incessant demands of leadership can so preoccupy us that we don't even realize the door just just gets shut, or it opens just once in a while, and we or we kind of go on spiritual autopilot. See, Jesus doesn't say that we can't lead or build a church or ministry or a company without. Um, he, he says he's, he's like, he doesn't, He doesn't say we can't lead or build without him. He just says that if we do it without him, it will not bear lasting fruit. Uh, that can only come out of abiding with him. That's why we always like to say. It's not what you do that matters first, it's who you are. And so the question is, in what way does your current pace of life enhance or diminish your ability to allow God's will full scope in your life? And uh, you know, i you able to remain surrendered amidst all the pressures coming at you? It is, it is a challenge. It, it, it is the, I would say, our perhaps our number one challenge every day is to remain in loving union with Him. And that goes for being on vacation as well. I mean, it, it, every day, the number one question is, how, how can I, how am I going to remain in loving union with Jesus today? Because when we don't, the consequences of not slowing down for this is we end up paying a steep. Price. Our, our soul gets warped, and uh, we, we pay a long term price, but then those around us do as well. Again, another one of my favorite, well, maybe not favorite in a good way, but favorite stories that, that uh, keeps me grounded in, in the fear of the Lord. It's not just the story of Moses in Numbers 20 when he strikes the rock. Because apart from him, I'll strike the rock every day out of frustration of things not going my way in my timetable. But it's a story in Acts 19 of the the seven sons of Sceva, a a Jewish uh, priest who, when they saw Paul driving out demons uh, and healing people, they were like, we want a piece of that action. And so they began to go out and they'd say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And uh, as they were doing this, one evil spirit answers them and says, well, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And uh, then the spirit jumps on them. The evil spirit jumps on them and overpowers them, and they get a beating, and they they go out of the house uh, naked. I I mean, the story that they wanted a spiritual shortcut, like they weren't going to spend the time investing in their their relationship with Jesus themselves. They just kind of got the anointing of Paul. You know, they got the words of Paul. They're going to do what he did without the inner life of Paul. And uh, they skipped over the long-term investment of growing into a life of loving union. You know, I thought to myself, I could just start telling you stories of where I felt like I got beat up too and went out of the house screaming where I, you know, half naked because I borrowed ideas and insights and in the spiritual life of other people and, and just tried to you know, lay them on what I was doing as a pastor and uh, presenting myself into, as to be something I'm not, pretending, uh, buying into an illusion. See, when you pretend and when we lie or appear to be something we're not, we're just, we're, we're just an enemy territory. It's a bad place to be in. And uh, at some point you're going to get a beating. You know, I'm not say it's an evil spirit jumping on you, but uh, it's it just it's a sobering story. So we want to have a life of loving union uh, with Jesus, that everything flows out of that. And just just think with me for a second. I mean, Jesus spent ninety percent of his life, thirty of thirty three years, about you know, in obscurity and hiddenness. Uh, he forged a life of loving union that one, with his father and and so when that thing blasted off and he began his ministry after the baptism of John I mean and, and the temptations came his way he was in a good place and and of course he's he's constantly getting going along to be with the father but he's got some anchor of being in loving union with God so so what are some steps how, how do you slow down for loving union let me just take a few minutes here before we close about, about that and um oh, let me tell you one more story it's just it's a great. Uh, one of the stories of the Desert Fathers. If you've never read Sayings of the Desert Fathers, I'll uh, pick it up uh, from Penguin. It's got a, a very cheap edition of it, or Sayings of the Desert Fathers by Benedict Ward. It, it just, it just, it, it's just going to take it to another level than reading a lot of evangelical pop. Okay, I mean, this is these are these sayings come out of a deep place in the desert. But there's one story of Abba Ant, uh, you know, Anthony the Great and uh, of Egypt, who was the, considered the father of. Uh, monasticism of the Desert Fathers and um, again, he spent 20 years in the desert in solitude and they say when he emerged his whole physical countenance was different Uh, uh, people came to him from all over and he had an incredibly powerful ministry of preaching and driving out demons and healing people it was amazing you know and tremendous wisdom coming from his mouth And then later on, end of his life, he went back to the desert again, to a deeper desert. But here's a story that I've pondered for years that comes out of Anthony's life. And it says this, Uh, Anthony received a letter from Emperor Constantine to visit him in Constantinople. And he wondered if he should go or not. Then he asked another desert father if he should go. And here's what this desert father, Paul, his name was, said, If you go, you'll be called Anthony. But if you stay here in the desert, you will be called Abba Anthony. And by Abba, means a father of the faith. And so he ultimately decided to decline the invitation to go to Constantinople to minister to the king. Why? Because it would have pulled him away from what God had for him in the desert. He was called to grow into an Abba, father of the faith, who would have an impact later on. Uh, And had he abandoned the desert and a lifestyle of slowing down for loving union with God, the title Abba would not have applied to him. And so he was careful, he was discerning about timing, about the delicate balance of that doing and being. And the way God, God has different callings for us at different seasons of our life uh, on, on balancing activity for God and our being with him. And so, you know, how do you put some limits around your, you know, life here to structure a life of loving union with God? And I don't have time to go into it. There'll be another podcast someday. But the first is, is, is the ancient practice of a rule of life. Uh, to help us strip the non-essentials out of our life to make for a more, you know, wide, expansive view of God. Now, listen, it's, I'm, I'm going to tell it to you straight. I mean, the the, 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 I think one of the gifts of emotionally healthy leadership, uh, discipleship to you and to the world is, I'm not. We're not simply talking about adding a couple of you know, spiritual disciplines in your life. I'm talking about a whole other mindset of taking the riches of the desert, of the mona- of monasticism through thousands of years, going back to Moses, and bringing that into today, contextualizing it to slow you down, to slow me down so that I'm actually in loving union with Jesus out of which everything flows. And so one of the gifts that we've brought into uh, discipleship for the regular person as well as for leaders is the building of a rule of life. Um, and taking the categories of Benedict's rule of prayer, rest, relationships, and works, and begin to build a structure out of which I slow down and pay attention to God in everything that I do. So that'll be a time for another podcast, an exercise. But the goal is so that there's deep penetration of the Word of God into your soul. That that it's not just in your head that truth is coming your way, but there's, there's space for it to actually penetrate. So I mentioned a few practices in the chapter, but I'm going to give you six before I close here of practices for slowing down for loving union that I would say need to get in that rule of life somewhere. And here's the six and I'll try to be as brief as I can with them. Uh, the first is silence. Uh, just silence that, that you actually have silence and stillness built into your uh, life. And, uh, Listen, there's been brain research done on this uh, for the last 20 years. And Dan Siegel's uh, written a number of books about how, you know, visiting monks, and again, whether it's Buddhists, Muslims, uh, you know, secular mindfulness, Christian monks, uh, all the research points to the same thing. Silence and stillness as as a whole— Changes your neural pathways. It, it, it. You get less reactive. Your life is more full. You're much more aware of what's going on around you. That all this, all this power of silence, even apart from God, is common grace. But of course, for us, silence and stillness is done before the Lord. It's part of our nurturing our relationship with God. That we're actually living in communion with Him, and from somewhere developing silence and stillness is is just core to it. And I, and again, if you don't know the story um, of Elijah. In uh, Kings, First Kings 19, where he God comes to him uh, in the sound of sheer silence. He doesn't come in the earthquake or the fire or the wind, but he comes in the sound of sheer silence. That's, that's really the, literally the Hebrew word there. And, and there's, there's a revelation of God that comes in silence that can come no other way. And it's a communion deeper than words. Uh, and I like what Dulles Willard says. Silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does. It throws us into the stark realities of our life. And it reminds us of death, which will cut us off from this world and leave us alone with God, only us and God. There's something there. And I invite you to, it's something prophetic and powerful. I, I don't know how to explain. It. And that's why for the emotional, I have the discipleship course, uh, part one and two, that we want to encourage you to bring to your church or your ministry. The core of that is the offices, it's people learning silence and stillness. It's the most difficult part of the course. It's the core of the course. And I wrote two daily office books to help people get into silence and stillness. And I wanna encourage you, you wanna get those, you wanna you want find out about that course at some point, you wanna get into a level one training, You know, check it out on our website. But that, that, that slowing down for love and union is the core of the church, especially, in, is core of the course, especially silence and stillness. That's number one practice. The second is scripture meditation. That you're meditating on scripture, creating space for time for it to actually sink in your soul. And so in other words, you stay with that scripture, whatever how God's coming to you, and you let it go deep in it. And I, you know, I've been again, I'm I'm right now doing Matthew's gospel again, uh really slowly, letting the the, the revelation from Jesus and of Jesus just come to me and go deep in. That's number two, scripture medication. The third, I want to add is reading books. Especially, you know, devotional type of books that speak to you slowly. Now, I don't care whether it's an audiobook. book. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I've been reading this book called "Seeing God" by Hans Boersma, and I just—I've been praying through. I, I'll take us at the end of my morning or afternoon or evening prayer. I'll just take a piece of it and, and some and some quotes and lines about the goal of life being the you know, beatific vision, seeing him face to face, and how. God comes to us and slowly is kind of teaching and educating us, giving us glimpses of himself in scripture and worship and creation and the sacramental understanding of all of life that reveals God. Uh, And and so I'll read a book slowly. I I, want to encourage some of you, just slow down your reading. Just slow it down. Um, There's, again, as I said on a previous podcast, imagine taking a month on a chapter, just letting it go deep in your soil. The fourth practice, not just silence, not just scripture medica- meditation, not just reading books slowly, um, but the daily office. Again, stopping three, four, uh, sometimes, you know, three, four times. I I, I pause three times a day uh, for morning, midday, and evening prayer. You know, David prayed seven times a day. Do I praise you? Daniel had three to eight, two times a day. And I have found the stopping for longer devotional time in the morning, midday, and evening, ending my day with God has just helped me abide in Jesus Uh Tremendously since I started this in two thousand and three, and again I learned it from monks. Uh, but this rhythms of the daily office uh, has been tremendous for me. Uh, the fifth is the prayer of examine, which that's worth the whole podcast coming out of Ignatian spirituality, uh, looking for consolations and desolations, and you know I would encourage you look that up on Ignatian spirituality about the prayer of examine and discerning God's will. He's done the best work on that. You know, where am I experiencing experiencing feelings of joy and peace and sensing connection with God, consolations? And where am I experiencing sadness and apathy and a sense of life being drained out of me? Where am I experiencing disconnection from God, desolation? And it's recommended. You we practice the examine once or twice a day, and but really the goal is it becomes something we unconsciously we live in it all day long. I live in the examine. I'm just I think it's part of my God. What are you saying? What are you doing? I'm listening to the Holy Spirit inside of me because I want to stay connected in loving union with Him. And I, I encourage you check out the prayer of examine, and then finally Sabbath keeping, uh, which will be next week. That's stopping for a 24 hour period each week, but that'll be next week's podcast. So. Uh, let me encourage you, listen, in EH discipleship or EH leadership, we're talking, I'm offering you and talking about a paradigm, a framework, a, a way of looking at life and yourself as a leader that that is, uh, I would say, larger and deeper than we tend to be accustomed to. And so give yourself a lot of grace as you begin this journey, because it is a radical one. And uh, I, I bless you in the journey. Now, let me encourage you to supplement your reading of, say, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, Book, download the discussion guide at EmotionallyHealthy.org slash EHLeaderGuide. Uh, pick it up. Uh, it's free from our website. And uh, the Lord bless you as you embark on this journey. And may today you slow down for loving union with Jesus. God bless everybody. Have a great week.